0: No, 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 no. You're making it weird. No, it's weird. Fuck. Okay, let's move on. We are having a sweaty conversation as it is. (laughs) I think let's, okay, we've said it.
1: Welcome to another episode of the MacGuffin Podcast From San Diego, California You are the co-host, Keith Foster
0: Uh, that's right You are Cassidy Robinson And we have to figure out a better way To introduce ourselves than just where we live (laughs)
1: Uh, well, should I I mention specifically The neighborhood? Do you have a rep? Do you have to rep anything?
0: Uh, Are you part of a gang? Sherman Heights, yeah Um No, I don't know. I just feel like that's the least interesting... Are you affiliated? I just feel like that's the least interesting thing you could know about somebody.
1: Well, not if you're affiliated. People definitely want to know that. Although you might not want to uh, reveal yourself on this
0: podcast. What about your name and a fun fact about yourself?
1: Okay, I'm Cassidy Robinson and my favorite animal is the red panda. Great. Does that work?
0: Yes, that works.
1: (laughs) Like we're officially in second grade again. Apparently. Well, what about you? What is your favorite animal?
0: Uh oh, my favorite animal. Okay, I am Keith Foster, and I guess I don't know if I have a favorite animal. That's so weird. Uh, mm-hmm. When I mm-hmm. was in, when I was a kid, it was the elephant. So I will say elephant.
1: Okay, kind of stock. You ask me. Fuck um, you. <laughs> and I Fuck just bumped my you mind. Your
0: hipster ass red panda bullshit. <laughs> have you ever even seen a red panda? They have one in San Diego, motherfucker. Well,
1: I've been to the San Diego Zoo, but I did not see the Red Panda. Maybe it was hiding.
0: Yeah, um, it like it lives in a tree and mostly sleeps. Yeah, like most animals in zoos.
1: I wanted to bring up at the top of the podcast I, I saw this thing on Twitter, and somebody mentioned that The uh, bass player of the Red Hot Chili Peppers, Flea, who has been known to be in movies, not a lot, but he's been in a few, Mm -hmm. has an incredible filmography. If you look at the movies he chooses to be in. So let me just find this tweet real fast. Here we go. These are the movies of Flea, bass player for the Red Hot Chili Peppers, has appeared in. Suburbia, not the Richard Linklater one, but the Penelope Spheris one from the 80s. Thrashin', Okay. Now no, it's familiar. Less than zero.
0: Are you literally Back to reading fu- all of them or just the notable yeah. ones?
1: All of them. Well, all the ones that are in this tweet. Oh. Less than zero. Back to the Future two and three. My own private Idaho. Son in law. The Simpsons. I don't know if that counts. Everyone has been in The Simpsons. Yeah. Uh, the Chase, which also had uh, Anthony Kiedis in it as well and um, Henry Rollins. The Big Lebowski, Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas, oh, Inside he's so Out.
0: Good. He's so good in The Big Lebowski too.
1: It, very Nihilists. memorable. Yeah. yeah. Well, we're going to be talking about uh, the Coen Brothers later. So, um, Baby Driver. Sure. I guess he did a voice in Toy Story Four, Damn. and uh, the movie Queen and Slim, which I didn't see, but I, I really wanted to.
0: Uh, yeah, me too. Yeah, Damn. that's a pretty that's a pretty banger heavy
1: filmography oh, even though well, he's just playing bit
0: parts for the most part. holy shit no it goes it goes even more like there's some not listed on that tweet uh he was in boy erased um, okay he was in inside i actually out. remember him from
1: that he plays like a a really mean guard in boy erased
0: he does a voice in inside out mm-hmm. um and there was one other one that i was like holy shit uh Oh, and he was in the 98 remake of Psycho, which, it was a big movie, but...
1: Yeah, I don't know if anyone's super proud of being in that one, but, yeah, notable, for sure. Did and it know. makes sense because he was in My Own Private Idaho with Gus Van Zandt, so he probably brought him back for that project. Yeah, um, that makes sense. But uh, this, this got onto another subject. I saw somewhere else somebody was asking if there's ever been a actor who's also a musician and is as good at both, or is close to being as good at both. And at the time, I could only think of Donald Glover slash Childish Gambino. Yeah. I think that's probably maybe the gold standard at the moment. What about you? Can you think of any
0: others? Oh, that's a a pretty tough one. Um, Yeah. It seems like most of the time that is usually... They're usually a musician first, mm-hmm. um, and then you know. But because I, I think it's just hard to take actors seriously when they already have like such a successful career. Um, yeah. So I, to be honest, I haven't heard uh, like fucking many songs from Bruce Willis's album, <laughs> or you know, uh, Johnny Depp. Multiple yeah. crazy things. Um I know Mark Larin uh, is pretty good at guitar and he's like guested with some people. Sure. Um, I would th- I
1: mean he I think even he would call himself a hobbyist.
0: Yeah, um, totally. Uh Jared Leto uh, fucking sucks ass at everything, so he's <laughs> off. Um, he wasn't a very he wasn't a very successful
1: band though i mean he's a very successful
0: and he's a very successful actor so if we're going with successful uh i would say he's pretty high up there i mean he has played uh even though it was a shitty version of the joker he did play the joker
1: Mm -hmm. there was also jennifer lopez who transitioned into musician very successfully for a little bit yeah yeah. Um, and But yeah, I think you're right. Usually when we see it, it's usually the other way. Musician first. And mm-hmm. then if they have charisma, if they have something about them that can go beyond just, you know, getting on the stage and dancing and singing or whatever. I mean, a lot of musicians are very shy and very like broken people. So they don't really super want to be yeah, in but, movies. But like, was- you would never see like Eddie Vedder, you know, being in a Judd Aptow comedy.
0: But I'll, I don't know. Actually, you yeah. might. At this yeah. point, you might. He actually, would not surprise me. <laughs> just if for the he's meme cameo. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Uh, He he was in an uh, in episode of Twin Peaks. I mean, granted, he was just performing, but
1: right. Uh, he also played a very small part in in uh, singles as well. Yeah.
0: So very bad example, but <laughs> I think I think the reason is is because music is performative by nature, right? You're you yeah. are performing in front of people. Uh, I I think a lot of musicians have some kind of stage person. Oh, fucking, holy shit. We're forgetting some big ones like Lady Gaga and uh, Madonna.
1: Madonna, actually, I would say even more so than Lady Gaga because she was in multiple films. Yeah, but Like in the 90s, especially when she was super hot, she was in like A League of Their Own. She was in Dick Tracy. She was in Evita. Yeah, I mean, those are all big movies,
0: and uh, I'm guarantee you that A Star Is Born is not Lady Gaga's last movie.
1: It uh, wasn't her first. She was in wasn't she in The Spirit, or was she but, in uh, yeah. one of the Sin Cities? I forget now.
0: But what my point was, um, especially performers that tend to do. Uh, she was in. Oh fuck, she was in Machete Kills. Mm-hmm. uh she was in sin City a dame to kill for so the less right. notable sequel um yeah. but still again pretty big movies so
1: yeah and then of I, I course think, like Chris Christopherson, you know
0: yeah so that, that, yeah. it it, it, it uh, happens but my point I was getting at was especially in the music video age because they are acting like you mm-hmm. know there's a lot of uh lip syncing there's a lot of um hitting uh, your mark. And the more theatrical the music video, like say Lady Gaga, um, sure, you know, which will have these extended intros and and um, m- you know they make little films basically. Yeah, uh, I
1: it- kind of miss those days—the days of like the whatever it was, like five million dollar, eleven million dollar videos. Oh, that are still like happening. twenty minutes long and have like these insane wraparound stories with like and they cut the song into like 30 second pieces just so they can like cut back to the the acting and the talking parts that nobody really wants to see. So um, apparently
0: you haven't seen a lot of Lady Gaga music videos because that happens a lot.
1: Um yeah so well, she's it's- the last one because now most of the time you get you know these lazy ass lyric videos which just looks like something you could whip up on Premiere on on your computer. Those are. Those are whipped up. Those aren't actual music videos, dude. But that's pretty... I mean, that's like the standard. That's what most people release now. It's it's very rare that somebody puts a lot of effort into to making like a full-blown
0: well music
1: video in the way that you, we remember them.
0: You need to go and watch the uh, music video for uh, Stupid Love which just came out this year by Lady Gaga. It is theatrical okay. as fuck.
1: <laughs> Keith is a Lady Gaga super stan and he's uh hell yeah out right She's now incredible.
0: On the She's an incredible musician. She's a very talented pop star. She's a good actress. Hell yeah, yeah. I, uh-huh. <laughs> I saw her at the uh I saw her live uh, during her Monsters Ball tour, and it was fucking incredible. It was like I know because
1: I was jealous because they the the uh, Scissor Sisters opened for them, and now they're not even a band anymore. But are we going to have to change the uh, tagline to the end of the episode? Give it to Gaga. Maybe.
0: <laughs> I, I'm not against that. Oh my uh, god! Imagine a movie with Ryan Gosling and Lady Gaga. Ah,
1: make it happen. Yeah, you, you have a, after a year. My- all these project, all these productions are stalled or paused or whatever. You know, you got a you got a while to I'll, talk some I'll people into some
0: shit. We could get gagas trendling.
1: Gagas,
0: <laughs> gagas. I, I got you. Or well, w-
1: or would would Goss-Gaw be better? Definitely gagas. Um, <laughs> Let's transition into a Consumo Bay. What a, what media have you been obsessed with in the last week?
0: Oh, man, you're just throwing that at me. Why don't you go first?
1: Okay, I will. Some people might have saw this. Uh, Post Malone, the, I don't know what you would call him, a hip-hop pop star, if you will. Um, he uh, announced some time ago that he was going to do a stream, a live stream performance of just Nirvana covers and uh, Travis Barker, the drummer from uh, blink One Eighty Two, was is going to be playing with him. And I like many an aged Nirvana fan said, well, I certainly don't want to see that. <laughs> um, and then I saw, uh, I was online late at night and uh, the, the stream had happened and it was all online uh, for you to watch. So, Bunch of people who I trust were posting about it, talking, including Chris Novoselic, the uh, original bass player for Nirvana, um, about how great it was. So I said, "Okay, fine, fine, I'll look at it." And uh, yeah, they kind of killed it. Right. it. It was uh, pretty, pretty great. Now I knew that uh, Post before he was in. Um, I don't know, SoundCloud rap world. He had played in bands. He knows how to play the guitar. He was been like high school metalcore bands and that kind of stuff. So I knew that he like came from sort of a punk background a long time ago, which is oftentimes the case for a lot of these new like face tattoo guys. Uh, But uh, yeah, like It was a really good, a really good set. They played like some of the lesser known songs. They didn't kick it right off with "Smells Like Teen Spirit." They even play "Smells Like Teen Spirit," and they played for over an hour. And uh, you know, there's some bleach cuts in there, which I wouldn't have expected. And you know, just coming off of this whole uh, "Puddle of Mud" debacle, did you see that? No. Okay, uh, quickly, I'll, I'll talk about this. So the guy from Puddle of Mud, the lead singer. The she fucking hates me guy. Yeah. Um, they they did a Sirius XM stream um, and they decided to do a cover of About a Girl. And for some reason, he put this weird affectation on the way he was singing it. And like it almost sounded like he was making fun of the way Kirk Cobain sings. Mm. Like it was so over the top and so mm. bad. Yeah. Um, and it was trending for a long time online, and I feel like this Post Malone thing was like the perfect antidote to all of that.
0: i have to check it out. I, I like Post Malone.
1: I you know I feel neither one way or the bottom um, one way or the other about him. I, he's just very not of my generation. I, I I've heard a couple songs and I'm like yeah, that's a song that's on the radio when I'm at Walmart or whatever.
0: Dude, um, uh, fucking the song from Spider-Man into the Spider Verse is a bop i've heard rock star that's the only
1: thing i've and uh congratulations those are the it's, only two i super know it slaps as as they say um but the, the cool thing i liked about his set is and you, what i think like is like the grand misunderstanding of nirvana um in the context of regular popular popular culture is everyone kind of thinks of them as being like the grunge gods or like you know like the, the, the guy who changed music forever, there's like super deifying kind of weird things that I'm sure he would have, Kurt Cobain would have been really embarrassed by. Mm-hmm. But I think of them as far as the lineage of punk rock, you know, coming out of the 80s underground punk rock scene and sort of like their place in that world. Um, and I feel like the thing that was cool about the Post Malone set is they like approached the songs from that angle. And like, they're even like wearing dresses and stuff like they did in the, uh, whenever they would play Uh, live in the early days. That's fun. Yeah. Where could
0: I watch this?
1: It's on on YouTube. YouTube? It's on YouTube. Totally, uh, easy to watch. If you're following me on Twitter, VC Cassidy, I retweeted it. So, um, you should definitely check it out. Also, if you're following, uh, Uh, Chris Novoselic on on YouTube, or a lot of musicians were posting about it last week. So um, it's definitely there. It was was for a charity event too. So like in between songs, they're talking about raising money for this or that or the other. Um, So it it was a cool thing. And uh, yeah, they ripped it.
0: Hey, I, again, I think Post Malone is a talented musician. He just has unfortunate fucking tattoos.
1: (laughs) Well, that's just a lot of people right now.
0: Yeah. 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 Um, Uh, anyway, what's your thing? Um, well, yours was probably better. Um, oh, I'll talk about something a little bit different. Um, I mean, like everybody, I've been, you know, watching a lot of TV and stuff, but I already talked about Twin Peaks on the last episode. It's Uh fucking weird and great. Um, but I have been... Uh, re- doing a lot of reading, catching up on uh, my backlog of like graphic novels and stuff. Okay. Um, and there's just there's a lot of good shit out there right now. Um, one of my personal favorites is called Coda by Boom Studios. The writer is Simon Spurrier and the artist is Matthias Fuck. I'm gonna butcher his name. Matthias Bergaria i don't know i don't know how to pronounce it um but it's c-o-d-a it's really cool and it has gorgeous fucking artwork uh it's like a fantasy post-apocalypse kind of mm-hmm. um yeah it's it's pretty pretty neat um
1: and this that, is and out on graphic novel like you are you're still yeah. really an issue uh
0: it's available in graphic novel um I think it's only three volumes, um, which I just got the last volume of, so uh, I'm going to start reading that soon. I'm pretty excited. Um, and I also started reading the um, original manga for Akira. Yeah. Um because I just I heard that there's so much more in the book that didn't make it to the movie. I mean, it's like well, the movie's like, like what two and a half hours or something. Or
1: it's probably not even that long. And the the graphic novel set is four or five omnibuses. No, it's like so,
0: yeah, it's like eight thick volumes. I I wouldn't call yeah. it omnibus because it's it's not quite the same as like a Marvel omnibus or something. Sure, but it, it's, it, it's not. It's
1: big. It's like the size of those uh, those essentials.
0: Yeah, but again, it that's I think that's a little misleading because the way graphic novels are paced versus Western sure. or um uh like Western comics versus manga, it's a much quicker read than than something like that. Um, because mm-hmm. it is so cinematic. There's um, a lot
1: more like splash pages and like a bouncing from one panel to the other, and that yeah, kind of stuff. a
0: lot less like narration. Um, a lot more action panels, so it's. Mm-hmm. I mean they just they just do comics very differently than we do, and I am developing a, a I really am liking the pace of that kind of thing. Um uh, yeah. Oh, so, I thought
1: you were gonna say you were developing psychic appendages because you're reading Akira.
0: Oh man, it's fucking weird. It is definitely <laughs> a much slower burn than the movie. Um, but a lot of stuff makes a lot more sense now. They spell yep. some shit out for you that is not clear in the movie <laughs> at all, uh, like any of it. Um, but it it is. I'm I'm gonna try to finish. Uh, I'm gonna try to pick up all the volumes and then rewatch the movie again. Um, cool. Yeah, it's so fucking good. Don't yeah. make don't make a live action American version. We don't need it well they've been trying and they've they've covered
1: just about every other popular uh manga slash anime so but i I saw Akira when I was in- uh grad school for our um Asian blockbuster class we watched it on our big screen mm. and that is the way to see it like it oh, is like uh that. so cinematic and just like you know the crazy editing and like the like the zoom shots and like how that, you know, that movie is paced. It's, it's still beautiful
0: to look at. The animation process for that movie is insane. Um, there's a podcast called wizard and the bruiser where they do like deep dives into nerd culture on the last podcast net podcast network. Um, Mm -hmm. And they do an episode of Akira. And so they talk about like a lot of, you know, like fun facts and behind the scenes stuff for Akira and like, They talk about the animation process, and it was insane. Like, I just, I can't imagine. Uh, Yeah, so that's a fun thing if you want to check out some supplemental Akira information. Um, Or just, like, look up YouTube. Like, there's plenty of behind-the-scenes little mini-docs and stuff about it.
1: Yeah, yeah, for sure. All right, let's go ahead and get into the meat of the podcast. I had kind of an interesting idea for an episode, uh, release what I thought was an interesting idea where we look at, we challenge ourselves to watch the best film by a quote unquote bad director and the worst film or one of the worst films or a bad film, um, by quote unquote good director. And, uh. I kind of threw this to you and uh, me to you. So why don't we uh, start with your pick? What was your assignment and what was the movie you picked?
0: Um, Oh, we went the other way with this. So I, hold on, let me change my IMDb real quick. Um, (laughs) Okay, so I chose, um, you gave me the assignment of pick uh, quote unquote good director's worst film, and I picked uh, the Lady Killers uh, mm-hmm. by the Coen Brothers. It's it's like kind of the only Coen Brothers movie that is was both critically panned and uh, box office flop. Um, pretty much nobody liked this movie. And and, it had, and
1: unlike a, i mean, because you could say that about a few. You could say that about Big Lebowski. You could say that about Hudsucker Proxy. Um, there's a lot of movies that didn't do very well for them. But unlike those films this one didn't later develop like a cult following or people don't quote it like the other ones. Um, has this was the first time you'd seen it?
0: Yes. This is the first time I'd seen it. And, uh, same here. I, I thought, yeah, this movie also just, I think it's just sort of been buried to time. Um, yeah. So yeah, let's break it down. Um, also I didn't realize this is a remake of, yes. Um, uh a movie from like the 50s or something 1955
1: um, it was a british film and Alec Guinness stars in the lead instead of Tom Hanks
0: yeah so i wonder if some of the critical panning um comes from that i i don't know i mean we'll we'll get yeah. into what our thoughts on it um but basically the plot is uh Tom Hanks is very verbose southern professor uh of uh like antiquities so like Latin and, and um dead languages. poetry and, and that history. kind of stuff yeah he he is an intellectual um, yeah, or at and, least fancies himself one well, yeah uh and he uh ends up boarding with this he elderly boarding, black widow yes <laughs> um not Scarlet Johansson but a Black woman who is aged and whose husband has passed. Yes. Um, (laughs) Anyway, uh, so she has a room for rent. He rents the room because he wants to... Him and this group of thieves, this group of criminals he's put together, um, are posing as Renaissance musicians Mm -hmm. to gain access to her basement so that they can dig a tunnel into... A uh, money room for a uh, riverboat casino. Um, yeah. Yeah. And it's a heist so, movie. Yeah. It, yeah. It's a heist movie with um, Marlon kind of a- Wayans, J.K. Mm-hmm. Sin- Simmons, Z
1: It's a big ensemble kind of black comedy farce, which the Coens have done many times in their career. Yeah. Um, uh, I think this is. You know the the heist angle specifically feels a little more specifically commercial than than uh, films that they had done up to that point because they always tackle a genre. They're definitely fans of genre, um, and they they'll they'll look at a genre and kind of study it or deep. Yeah, deconstructed or whatever, but this one felt more like, especially for the time that it came out, because there was mm-hmm. a lot of movies kind of like this, I mean, this is not too far away from Ocean's Eleven, this is this came out in 2004, um, and then there was that movie The Big Bounce, and like all of mm-hmm. those Elmore Leonardy things that came out around that time, some of which were like Better Than Others, uh, Be Cool was kind of in this territory. Yeah, um, yeah. And I think that was one of the reasons why, at the time, I wasn't as excited to like immediately see it. Even as I was like very excited about the Coen Brothers and watching all their old films and stuff, it just looked like another one of those movies. And then the fact that nobody really seemed to like it like didn't like make me any more excited to see it.
0: Yeah i I don't I don't know that I really. Knew that it was the Cohen brothers. Like I, and and I don't know if I was as into them then. I mean, I I think I'd seen a few of their movies, but um sure. Uh, yeah. So I I remember the marketing was weird, and then I was like, yeah, sure, why not? And then yeah, it just it got shit on co- totally and completely. Um, mm. And and I would think- you say that
1: that that reception was warranted now that you've actually seen the film and we've we're seeing it a good 15 years past the, the day that it was released if we're
0: comparing it to all of the coen brothers other work then then of course like this i don't think this uh, here's the thing uh this movie's kind of a mixed bag it has some yeah. moments um, it had, I don't think, okay, I'm going to go out and just say, I don't think this movie's like a complete clusterfuck. I don't think no. it's terrible, but I do
1: think that... You see what they're going for when you're, when you're watching it and you know their sensibility.
0: Um- um, and, and there's a moment where the Coen brothers sensibility takes over and that's when the movie gets good. Uh, I do think that the, the, oh, <sighs> The beginning is pretty good and the end is good, but a lot of the middle it just feels like it's kind of treading water to me. I, I do think that there was sort of a weird tonal imbalance with this movie. I, I don't know sure. that they ever quite landed on the comedy being as funny as maybe it was meant to be or and dark. Yeah, like... like even I, when
1: people are dying all over the place, and, you know, and these weird little violent things occur, it never feels as weighted as it probably should. Because I the see. whole movie is so farcical that it's really hard to even kind of
0: go there with the movie. I see, that was the stuff that I really enjoyed, was, was uh, like, when the characters start dying and stuff, but... But yeah, they're just, I feel like there is definitely a tonal imbalance that doesn't typically seem, that, that's not normally an issue that the Cohen brothers have, you know, they, they tend to either go, you know, uh, a lot darker, uh, you know, more straight crime, um, or, or more comedy, um you know and and you yeah. there's there's i would say this is
1: definitely
0: in the ballpark
1: of something like raising arizona
0: sure but but again it just never quite clicks and i think some yeah. of that uh is i think it was kind of miscast um, a little bit like tom hanks is fine but he's not He's not giving the kind of performance that merits as much screen time as he gets, um, and I the performance fe- isn't nearly
1: as captivating as the movie thinks it is.
0: Yeah, yeah. Uh, not
1: that he's bad. He's not. Not bad. that he's bad. Here's here's my my take on uh, Tom Hanks's whatever he's doing in this movie. Um, if this were a 5 minute SNL character? Yes. Sure. Fine. Ham it the fuck up.
0: Exactly. Um, It gets old.
1: But when you when there's these long dialogue set pieces and these soliloquies that he's giving, his accent's kind of all over the place. It's not like totally pinned down, which might have been an intentional choice, but it doesn't come off that way.
0: Um, yeah, I don't I don't think that uh, I would I didn't have problems with his accent like that. I think, you know, because we never know how much of this character is bullshit and how much isn't so. right.
1: That's what I meant by it might have been intentional. But I but, think what it comes the problem with the is is that the performance as a whole is that if it's just, it's very, I'm, I'm very aware at watching it of his acting choices. Yeah, and and uh, it well, feels theatrical and stagey in a way, kind of the whole movie, but especially that performance. It feels theatrical and stagey in a way that sort of undermines what should be the menace or the mystery of the character. Actually, this might be controversial to say, but in 2004, maybe Kevin Spacey would have done this character more justice.
0: I, um, yeah, I mean, yeah, in 2004, maybe, but... Uh... Uh, I mean, think of his character from
1: from um, that uh, show that everybody watches but me, House of Cards. House, yeah, yeah. Uh, the, if you brought, like, if you kind of took that and then just ramped up the silliness a little bit.
0: Oh, d- no. Do you know who I, while watching this, and I know this is viewed through retrospect, I yeah. wanted uh, Paul F. Tompkins to play this part.
1: Oh, well, <laughs> I mean, yeah. Right? Right? Uh, it's almost, like... If they did I, a stage version of the show, like he should be the
0: guy they go to, <laughs> absolutely, or just fucking remake it again, whatever. Like, I don't think <laughs> the problem was the script. Um, no, there I mean, the, some of the writing is very,
1: very clever, especially like the verbiage and stuff in the, in the dialogue. I, I there's so, and every once in a while, there's a good one-liner and things like that. I do I, have uh, one big problem with this what, movie, but I'm gonna let you finish your thing first.
0: Okay. Uh. Yeah. I have. I have a lot of little problems with this movie. <laughs> One is the, the uh but since we're talking about the problem with the Tom Hanks character, mm-hmm. um the a lot of the scenes are sort of edited around him and yeah. his bullshit explanations when he when that is usually the least interesting thing going mm-hmm. on. And so I think that was a big problem for me was the editing choices of like, why are we focusing on this fucking five minutes of bullshit it we, and comedic moments I think were downplayed or suffered because of that because yeah. it was tr- trying to focus on this like star performance of Tom Hanks which it just it shouldn't have been that it should have been much more of an ensemble piece but that yeah. brings me to my next issue it's a very bad ensemble piece uh I feel like I feel like, again, so much screen time is wasted with Marlon Wayans and J.K. Simmons. And I feel like they have negative chemistry. Screen chemistry. Yeah. Especially since they play off of each other so much of the movie. Exactly. And they feel like they're in two different movies. Neither of them is necessarily bad per se I was actually very very much
1: enjoying JK
0: Simmons in this movie I
1: think if if there's a bright spot in the cast it's him mm, I I mean I it's don't know. it's silly I, and it's it feels he But it, to me he's like getting whatever the tone of this movie is like wherever like the target is I feel like he's the only one that's quite in it
0: I disagree I feel like uh his Choices are so broad and so I don't know, like so sort of scriptorly and actorly. Like he has this thing where he keeps saying, "like it's the easiest thing in the world," but it doesn't feel. It feels so telegraphed to me. Right. I don't know. I actually. Well, the, I I mean G-K I I blame K-K the sentence. writing.
1: I blame the writing on a lot of that because there is a lot of there's there's things that the Coen brothers do, and as good as they are, and sometimes they're incredible. I mean, we've seen films from them that are will last, you know, centuries in the collective conscience, but when they're kind of, like, leaning on their laurels or dropping the ball a little bit, the stuff the when they start calling back to their own jokes or they start, uh, when it starts yeah. to feel very inside jokey to the people who were in the cast that particular day, um, or when, they're kind of like tossing when, when the writing gets so stagey and so specific that it it doesn't breathe or doesn't feel organic at all.
0: Yeah, and that that's that's what this movie feels like. It it feels very inorganic. Yeah. Um, honestly, of the of the ensemble of the criminal enterprise, um, yeah. the only one who I really enjoyed. Uh, was uh, Zima as the general um who had he was almost much a wordless no performance out. yeah <laughs> but but and and maybe that's why maybe i was just so bogged down by all of the the dialogue from the other characters that just sort of did nothing for me but i feel like he has a really fun physical performance um uh, uh, like I feel like I always know what his character's thinking, even if he's not saying it. Like I feel like he is doing some fucking work here, and and I yeah. I feel like that that character and that performance is easy to overlook because it's so quiet. Um, but that to me, he is the tone. The tone this movie should have been like funny, but also hmm. there's a, there's a hint of menace. Um, and th- there's a very real threat and a ve- very real edge to that character, but it can go either way. It can either be played for comedic effect or it can be played for tension. And, and I think that's the character that the only character that I felt like really had that balance down.
1: Yeah. There's, there's, he kind of fits into that Cohen archetype of like um, uh, the Russian in Fargo. Um, sure. Or yeah. I mean, there's several characters that kind of fit that archetype in Big Lebowski. Uh,
0: there's similar in um, Hail Caesar as well.
1: Yeah, uh, of, the, of the the quiet, cool, dangerous, but almost comedically so, um, stoic. Like that's why they're funny is because they're the straight man in the scene. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and, and uh, yeah, he's definitely doing a lot of a lot of. Interesting physical work, especially. He almost kind of feels like he was from like a Wes Anderson movie or something.
0: Um, kind yeah. Like there's just something about it that is so stylized and, and yeah. But but that's also sort of the problem. Uh, every character feels like they're plucked from a different movie or plucked from a different genre. But yeah, it, when it all comes together, it doesn't work. It's it's not mm. like I I don't know. They just never. They ne- no one felt like they were in the same movie together. And
1: right, it always kind of feels like you're watching Table Read when they're doing yeah, scenes. Yeah, it
0: just feels very hodgepodge. Like um mm-hmm. in, in not that any one uh character or actor is doing a bad job, it just I don't think it ever quite coalesced into something good until uh I thought the the end was great. Um the sort of the the post heist the big third act the, yeah, uh, to me that is where it was working because it was uh, there's less sort of monologues from Tom Hanks it and the comedy of errors became clear like at that yeah. point it was just okay, now we have a pattern like i I feel like this would almost work as a short film better than than like a full two hour something movie.
1: Yeah, or even if it had been done silent.
0: Yeah, you know. Yeah, or, um, or just like I don't know, just I think cut some of that middle act and or tone some of it down.
1: Well, I um, like a I like a good heist,
0: and even though this one is not a very complicated one, they're just
1: like digging a tunnel, of, you know, about a whatever it is, a few hundred feet, um, and there's not a lot to cover up and and whatever. But I'm I'm still always intrigued by that. Format, uh, genre format of like seeing them, seeing the plan hatch out and where they come into problems and how they fix those problems and that kind of stuff. So I enjoyed the middle enough uh, just uh, like riding the wave of the genre expectations. Sure. Um, My issue with the third act is that none of, well, specifically what I said before, is that none of the deaths that occur and in the way that they occur. Felt consequential, and never. I never. There was never like because a lot of their movies kind of do this. Like I said, Fargo has its moments, kind of in the in this territory. Uh, Burn After Reading has has uh, moments in yeah, this territory I think as well.
0: Burn After Reading definitely does, where they play the deaths more for comedy right. than, than because anything else.
1: So the the type of movies that the Coen Brothers make, whether it's they're doing dramatic work or whether they're doing thrillers or whether they're doing horror films or whatever they're doing, comedies, they're always making more morality tales. Mm -hmm. Um, And so there's a lot of this kind of uh, karma comes to bite you in the ass uh, type of stuff in their work. And I felt like of all of those, the problem here is maybe initially with the problems with the cast and the chemistry, but also when it gets to that stuff, it feels like it's rushing through it. And I I never get a point where when one of these things happens where I'm like, oh, my God. Like, I never get a like a leg in the wood chipper moment in this movie. I'm just like, "Eh, yeah, well, okay, he's dead. Yeah, but I mean, it's the different kind of movie. I know like Fargo is actually a thriller. People think it's a comedy. It just happens to be a very funny thriller. Whereas this is a comedy that has some like comedic violence in it. But but yes, I, I, I my issues with it is like. The inconse- the violence is always very inconsequential. My big problem with the movie, and I be- I think the the, uh, the floor needs a little space for this discussion, which, no pun intended, floored me while I was watching it from the get-up, from the first scene on, and it was impossible for me not to view the movie from this lens once I was watching it that way. This movie has
0: race issues. Yeah. It really does. I Uh, mean,
1: I understand that the Coens, they like to tackle genre. They like to tackle kind of cultural specific things. No, like the, like the South or like the Minnesota or whatever. They kind of pick their thing and they go with it. But I think, and I've never really had a problem with that before knowing who they, you know, they're kind of these, these like intellectual Hollywood types writing. We'll say writing down a little bit on characters. Um, and I've never had an issue with it as bad as I have here, where I'm like, "Whoa, stay in your lane."
0: Yeah, no, I I agree. Uh, in part of me was like, "Is this just? Is, is it when the movie came out?" But I definitely felt it too. It is, uh, uh like when you have, I um,
1: mean, what's the name going, of the lead actress in here? The uh, the the woman that they that they're living with.
0: Uh, Irma Irma Hall.
1: Yeah, is who's a great actor too? and who's mm-hmm. doing really good work in the movie, and everybody in the movie. I should say, you know, race or otherwise, are game to do what they're doing. But you know, when she's talking like to the the sheriff or whatever, and she's like, "I don't like this new hippity hop music," and all this stuff, yeah. I was like, "Ooh!" And then later when we when we're introduced to Marlon Wayne's character, and it's just like it seems like every single person of color in this movie is written to be an idiot.
0: Yeah, uh I I will say um well yeah, uh, even the sheriff he's not an idiot per se but he is written to be like lazy. Yeah. It's very um,
1: like step and fetch it. Yeah. Like almost minstrelly sometimes. Well,
0: I I was going to say that I, I think Marlon Wayans is is definitely uh portrayed that way and I I don't think it's, you know, necessarily his fault but yeah no i just, think he's
1: doing what he was directed to do and and of course he had come off of like don't be a menace in a lot of these type of movies and scary movie uh scary movie movies but, and that but,
0: kind of stuff okay where, but the the difference with but the context is, yeah it, that's what i mean that i think there is a lot of difference when he has sort of more creative control and right when it's you know predominantly black casts with uh you know black directors versus all of the black people kind of in a white movie are sort of portrayed this way. I no, I it is, it is an issue. Um, yeah. I, I, like I said, I was, I guess kind of chalking some of it up to just being dated, but I don't know. Um, e- either way, it's a little hard to watch. now. Right.
1: I think, I think they had thought, because I don't think that the Coen brothers are racist necessarily. Maybe, a little like ignorant, but I think that they had just thought, like, we've done this. We've covered every culture. We're, you know, we're, we can send up whatever. Like, that's what we do. Mm-hmm. And I think, and, you know, because the, there's some stuff kind of in this territory in Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? that doesn't come off this way because there's this little mythological angle and there's a lot of things going on in that movie that makes, that brings a little bit more depth to what they're doing. Um, but in, in this, I really feel it's just like, whoa, you think this is okay, but this really isn't. And what's funny is I like scanned, you know, the blurbs on Rotten Tomato to see if anyone had mentioned this. And I, granted, I didn't like click on any one particular review to see if it came up. But it to me, this was screaming at me through the screen the whole time. And I was surprised that it was kind of like not the thing that most people bring up. Well, okay, a cu- but we a couple. are in a different time as far as that goes.
0: Yeah, a couple of things. We we are in a very different time, and and also, you know, it here we are two white guys talking about the problem with race. Like, uh, yes, there there was some problematic stuff that made me uh, uh, viewer in twenty twenty pretty uncomfortable. Sure. Okay, let's move on. I do want to mention some positives of the movie. Yeah, there's um, a few
1: things to enjoy here
0: uh like most coen brothers movies they have such a good visual eye um there are well such... let's
1: give let's let's give the the prize here to roger deakin's the, who um, yeah. the cinematographer who did, a, a, did the bulk of their movies um especially early on and uh yeah i mean everything he points i mean the last shot of this movie when we see uh-huh. the main yeah. character like, you know, and it shows him in the sunset and his coat is floating in the wind. And then it's the, the credits rise up film from Joel and Ethan Cohen. I said, that was a tremendous waste of Roger Deakins time
0: <laughs> <laughs> and, and talent. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but, but yes and no. Uh, I think that the, the cinematography of this movie is a lot of what makes it watchable Um, it
1: elevates it for sure
0: yeah like just the way that that he makes the portrait of the uh, dead husband like a character is really cool uh yeah it's just it's shot so impeccably well
1: yeah i mean there's so many shots just you know the color correction and things in this movie and like the kind of golden hue over everything and 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 I think, you know, another positive of the film is I really like the way that they incorporate music yeah. into their, into their scenes and how they use the sort of the, the uh, rhythm of of uh, the choirs and things like that to pace the rhythm of their, of their shots. Um, there's some really clever stuff going on there and they just come off, not very long off of, oh brother, where art thou? And I think you can feel that influence here.
0: Totally. Yeah. Uh, no, I agree. I I, I honestly think I I feel comfortable saying this is probably one of the worst movies by the Coen brothers oh easily but even even then I don't think it's unwatchable I don't think no. it's I don't think it's a bad movie it's just kind of meh and uh-huh. I think it could have been all right with just a little bit of a rewrite and some editing some different editing I think could have made some of this stuff play in ways that it didn't in in mm-hmm. the version that we got, but and I don't it think also it's completely just feels aside. a
1: little safe. Like I think that's my issue with it. Is yeah. it's like if there if there had been less because I feel like the idea of this movie is to really make a commercial film. Uh, that's yeah. why they have Tom Hanks in the lead. That's why the movie looks the way it does that's why the violence is kind of curtailed the way it is i feel like if they had just lo- allowed a little bit more edge into the material mm-hmm. i mean it's 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 an r rated movie but kind of a light r um yeah it's mostly I, language yeah uh, i think it's rarely
0: language yeah
1: yeah i think i mean there's there's things to fix here for sure it's 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 messy but um but in a weird way, it's actually <laughs> it's messy because it's because of its attempt to be so slick. Yeah, no, I I agree.
0: I agree. Um, I
1: so think, I wanted I to we've... grade this on two uh, on two uh, uh, levels here, because, you know, we're talking specifically about the bad film from a good director. So mm-hmm. if we're just rating this on dark comedies. Uh, as a whole or heist movies as a whole or whatever. What would you rate this as?
0: Uh, uh, like a C plus, like yeah. pretty average, pretty average. Uh, b- yeah, b- with a visual flair. If this was like
1: It'd a blind rental or something like that or a blind stream, um, yeah, that's what I'm feeling. is like a C plus on this. If we're grading it on the curve of the Coen brothers' work, where does a where does it sit?
0: Oh uh I mean easily D minus like like <laughs> they, they just have done so much better and and it's not even funny like I I keep even thinking about their most recent uh the Netflix movie The Ballad of Buster Scruggs which I still oh, think might incredible. be the yeah. might be the best Netflix movie I've seen like it's mm-hmm. so fucking good and yeah. and I think that they're they're doing everything that this movie couldn't do. Um, It's funny. It's dark. It's, uh, it's sad. It's hilarious. Like they can just do so much better and have done so much better. So yeah, it's like D minus. uh, Yeah. That's
1: probably, that's probably accurate. D minus or maybe, maybe if I'm being like very generous, a D plus. Um, I mean, there is other work that they've done that are kind of, light and fluffy and a little less consequential than their best work, like something like the Hudsucker Proxy, or something like um The Man Who Wasn't There or Hail Caesar or whatever that are kind of in more in this wheelhouse of their work. Um, but this even amongst that gallery it pales quite a bit.
0: Yeah. Yeah.
1: Um so yeah that's that's kind of where we are on that. I'm glad I saw it though. I'll say that about it. It yeah. I'm not mad that I saw it.
0: Yeah, no, me neither. I, I, I didn't think it was a waste of time. I didn't think it was utter garbage. It just it was just kind of eh. It was just whatever.
1: Yeah. Okay. Um, well, let's go ahead and move on to the the next film that we're doing in this project, which is the uh, best film or a good, quote-unquote, good film by a, quote-unquote, bad director. And I, for this, I chose Event Horizon by the filmmaker Paul W.S. Anderson Paul W. Sanderson, little less known than the Coen brothers. So I'll kind of remind people what he did. He does a lot of bad video game adaptations. He did the, a lot of the resident evil movies. He did the original mortal Kombat, um, which some people have fond feelings for, but they really should look at it again because it's mostly nostalgia goggles there. Um, and then uh, Alien versus Predator, um, Pompeii, Death the Race. Three Musketeers, re- Death Race two thousand, yeah, the Three Musketeers uh, reboot, if you will. Um, so he's he does a, a lot of a these schlock. like yeah uh, CGI spectacle kind of dumb B movie
0: stuff. And and most of it is uh, and because uh, I don't know sometimes you seem to have a bias of just like shitting on, on anything that's a blockbuster. So I want to be clear that th- these are like, these are not well-regarded movies either. Like No, this like, is
1: low. This is like, uh, when I, when I say B movie, I mean, in every, ter- uh, uh, manifestation of that, of that terminology, like it's, they, 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 want to be big blockbusters, but this is the type of stuff you shove in, and like mid February schedule or like end of August schedule type of movie. Totally,
0: yeah. So yeah. Okay, so why don't you set up Event Horizon for us?
1: Okay, um, Event Horizon came out in 1997, and this was his big follow up to the success of the original Mortal Kombat. Um, he did do a film before both of these. It was like his little indie entry called Shopping, a sort of uh, lovers on the run. Heisty kind of thing, starring Jude Law, which has some kind of like indie cred, but, uh, he, he's, th- th- whatever promise was set up there never really manifested anywhere else. Um, but uh, this film is a sci-fi horror film that takes place in the year 2047 <laughs> or something like that.
0: <laughs> it's, uh, it, no, it was like 20. Oh yeah, yeah, 2047. I think.
1: Yeah, they we uh, first it, colonized it, the moon in 2015. We first yeah uh, explore. It, there's like a scrawler at the beginning that ex- that kind of explains where we are technologically and. This is kind of a horror sci-fi setup we've seen a hundred times where there is a spaceship with a crew that doesn't quite know what's going on. Um, There's a doctor on the crew that's played by Sam Neill, and he explains to them that they have to do a rescue mission. You know, they're kind of diverting from their like space mining situation or whatever they're doing uh, to be able to, to rescue this ship that has been thought to been gone for years and years and years, but it's just now appeared around the orbit of Neptune. So uh, they're going to investigate what happened to this ship called the event horizon, which was built by this doctor, uh, who was boarded along with them. Um, this also is a little bit of an ensemble, although a lot of these people weren't as well known at the time. Lawrence Fishburne was probably the biggest star of the film, along with Sam Neill, who was coming fresh off of, uh, Jurassic park. Um, but we also have, uh, Jason Isaacs is in here. A lot of like lesser known British actors. Sean Pertwee. Um, yeah. Basically what ends up happening is what happens in all of these sci-fi horror films. Once they investigate said ship, there's something on there that they shouldn't have messed with or ends up uh, glomming on to their mission or destroying it somehow. The thing in question this time is instead of a biological terror like an alien invading somebody's body, um, they find out that this core of the ship that the doctor built that allows them to... Open up black holes to do uh, space time, quick space time. Which, by the way, his explanation of how wormholes work is exactly the same as the way they did it in Interstellar. It's also he folds exactly, the paper in half.
0: yeah, it's also exactly <laughs> the same as how they do it in Stranger Things. Like this isn't. They've been doing this in movies for a long time. I guarantee there is <laughs> a source movie. Uh, uh, I have this, <laughs> I guess I'll burn this on the podcast, but I want to do it like a comedy sketch about, mm. um, like NASA not, uh, like not being able to explain how anything works because their budget's cut so they can't afford like normal office supplies <laughs> like staplers <laughs> and, and, uh, <laughs> cause there's always like, it's a room full of fucking space astronauts and he has yeah. to, uh, Explain, explain how holes work. They, they yeah. have to explain it in fucking English uh, <laughs> by poking holes in a dirty picture. Like, right? Okay. Right. Okay. I mean, they're, they're, anyway. space,
1: they're space miners, but still, but still, um yeah. So then that happens, and then once they're on the ship, they discover that this this weird gyroscope looking core that makes black holes had sent the ship into hell for seven years. And, uh, they all start to have these weird encounters with these, um, fears and demonic shit that they, uh, would rather not see. Yeah. So I, I think the reason why I brought this up, this is a movie I have seen before, but it'd been a while, but the thing that people always say about this film, when you're talking, when it comes up in conversation, like, you know, the average kind of vaguely interested in movies, but not, like, obsessed with movies kind of person. Mm-hmm. Um, As you'll say, you know, the movie will come up, or you're talking about horror films, somebody brings up Event Horizon, they're always like, dude, that movie fucked me oh. up. <laughs> I mean, are, it, it has it a cur- reputation as being, like, this very scary, very weird movie. Um I don't know if it totally holds up to that these days, but... uh But yeah, what did you think of Event Horizon?
0: Let's get into it. Holy (laughs) shit, this movie's not very good. (laughs) Um, Okay, I just... I can't think of a single... I can't think of a single thing that this movie was trying to do that hasn't literally been done better in every movie that's done the same thing. Um, Sure. I mean, the beginning is so cookie cutter formulaic to aliens that it's like... Oh, yeah.
1: There's some of the sets, I swear, they pulled off of an old alien set and just refurbished.
0: Also... I I know this is a little bit mean because this is 1997 and we should hold it to different standards, but the fucking CGI! <laughs> Holy shit! How can anything be that scary when it looks like a fucking two-frame uh, oh Roger
1: I mean, Rabbit cartoon going yeah, on. Yeah,
0: yeah, and and so unnecessarily. Like the opening shot is this ugly-ass CGI-like stuff floating in zero gravity. Uh, oh, okay, okay. There's so much I did not enjoy about this movie. <laughs> <laughs> um, so it starts with shitty CGI, and then it, it also feels like it takes forever to get to the movie. We have this a mm. uh, uh, weird sort of cold open that doesn't really do anything. Uh, Probably, the, it,
1: I mean, it, it does... There is a little bit of a bookend there. So I, sure. I, I think there was an idea there. There's a lot of this movie where there's great ideas that are not like fully formed or like fully realized.
0: Yes, yeah. I uh it's yeah, it's almost the opposite of uh the Lady Killers, where <laughs> I, I feel like uh this could have been okay. It's just so poorly made. Um mm-hmm. Yeah, I think uh, yeah. So it starts out with this awful, awful CGI, which I get it. It was the late '90s. We were trying to, we were trying some shit. Yeah. Um. Again, the story is so cookie cutter. Like the characters. We gotta do are, a
1: rescue mission. Yeah. yeah,
0: and the characters are so stock. Except Lawrence Fishburne, who is just a fucking asshole. He's (laughs) such a fucking cock in this movie. Like, every time uh, uh, Sam Neill's character tries to talk, he's just like, we don't have time for this, doctor. Uh, (laughs) Like, he says that to everybody all the time, which I get it, you're space rescuers, but...
1: Like, one of them is, like, getting changed in the holding room, and he's like a woman is getting changed. She's like in literally nothing but her brawn panties, which happens more than once in like a very obviously leery sort of way. But, uh, and he's like, are you going to come down to the dock? And she's like, uh, can I get changed first? He's like, no,
0: <laughs> it, it, she, no, she's just like, uh, she says, do you mind if I get changed first? And he's like, uh, actually I do mind. Like, <laughs> fuck you. He's such a bastard. Um, yeah. but again, it, I think it just comes from kind of a, like, in ignorance of like, okay, he's gonna be a military guy, so he's strict, but it's yeah. it's in the all these like sort of nonsensical ways. Yeah. Um that that don't make yeah, in any logical sense. So the intro to this movie is rough. Uh it takes us a while to even get to know the characters. A lot of these characters we don't get to know at all, which whatever. You know, it, it we don't necessarily need to in a horror film.
1: No, not um, not in this kind of thing
0: yeah, they get to the event horizon, which there man, there are such logical fucking gaps. like I'll give you a, a small microcosm of what this movie is. Um, the when they find the event horizon, uh the the scene where they go like are encounter the event horizon is so clunky. It starts with the ship shaking. Mm -hmm. like massively shaking because they're going through a space storm, I guess. I don't know. They never really explain why the ship's shaking. The pilot is like smooth sailing. No, it's (laughs) fucking not. It's the exact opposite. Everything is shaking. You're talking about how you're going to ram into this mystery ship because there's space clouds. Then they, then they encounter it out of nowhere. Sure. Fine. Whatever. It's, sort of standard, like, space disaster, like, ah, we're getting too close to the ship. Then they find the opening to the ship, like, the main hull, and they have to, like, grab onto these, uh, uh, use these docking clamps, clamp onto these metal wire things that don't make any sense, and Sam Neill's like, uh, those aren't for docking, what the fuck who designed the <laughs> ship then you're telling me they don't have like universal docking mechanism. Like it just doesn't make any sense. The, the scene is so awkward and clunky and th- that's just sort of this whole movie is so just awkward and clunky and not nothing ever makes sense. Uh, and, and like, there's no buildup to what the horror actually, like what is the actual horror um like this this black hole thing opens mm-hmm. and then just sort of stuff starts happening and it's mostly just them yelling at each other that they're not crazy.
1: There's like no real evidence. Yeah, I think that- there's the the attempt here is sort of a psychological horror so there's this movie's ripping off more than just Alien, most specifically no, it, Alien, but there's there's there he's going for kind of a Shining esque yes. thing that, here on the ship. That's the two ship. movies
0: this is. It, it's yeah, there's Alien, even like a
1: big blood pour that's very visually similar to the I, elevator
0: it, it, in the it Shining. Yeah. It is, and then there's also uh, like
1: a, a touch or a hint of Hellraiser going on here too.
0: Yeah, a little bit, but uh, but Shining and Alien are the big obvious influences that it's straight up ripping off but
1: as done by a total hack who has no sense of how to build atmosphere
0: yeah exactly like that and that's that's the thing and and it's also just a pretty ugly not well shot movie like at the very end when we're getting this sort of like big reveal of uh sam neill's character like yeah. the shot is all just like this super zoom in of his eyes, completely like <laughs> cutting away any sense of scene or, or 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 character and and yeah, that was a weird know. choice. Well, okay, so you
1: know, spoiler alerts, this movie's a gazillion years old. Most people have seen it, but Sam Neill's character reveals himself to end up being seduced by the dark side of this black hole hell creation he he made and he ends up turning on the crew very much like Ian Holm turns on the crew in alien um, or
0: like, uh, uh, Jack Nicholson from the shining. Yes, absolutely. There's, e- there's even a fucking scene where he hugs a naked dead lady who got out of a bathtub. Like, come <laughs> on.
1: <laughs> yeah. So that happens. And then there's, uh, you know, a lot of people, actually this meme is kind of going around right now on, uh, on uh, social media, specifically on Twitter about the, about the, uh, coronavirus. Um, it's like at the beginning of the coronavirus and it shows like Sam Neil from, from Jurassic Park or something. And then it says end of the coronavirus and shows him at the end of Event Horizon when his eyes are, you know, out and he <laughs> has all these scars all over his face and his hair is okay, crazy. That's, that's um, <laughs> uh, but yeah, so if you, if you want to know the origins of the meme, that's where it comes from. So by the end of this, he's become, uh, a hell simp and he uh, he decides, you know, he's going to kill everybody and show them the beauty of the horrors of hell, um, which all of that, like in theory, is pretty cool and scary. Uh, but, yeah, there's this weird scene where he's like, you know, describing when it's revealed how evil he's been, how long he's been evil, um, where they only cut when they're doing the, like cutting back and forth in conversation between him and Florence Fishburne it only cuts to his eyes
0: it's, it's a like, super zoom you can't see any of the the makeup that i'm sure yeah. it took a while to design and actually looks pretty good like there's some there's some yeah. decent um like prosthetic it's very like and,
1: fangoria magazine but it it's decent for
0: what it is well like you said it it has kind of a hellraiser vibe to it so like yeah uh, uh again i i feel like I feel like this movie, kind of everybody was sort of working a lot harder than the director. Um, <laughs> I don't know. It just, I didn't care for it. I, I thought this is kind of a, kind. you know, it's pretty typical of this guy. It's sort of a schlocky mess. Um, yeah,
1: I do think there is a few things. Moments in the movie that are effective, and and again ideas that are effective. Yeah, yeah.
0: Um, I think and there's there's the a big, couple cool shots too.
1: Sure. Yeah. Um, I think the actual design of the ship of the Event Horizon is cool and kind of iconic in a way. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, I understand the build of it. Like a lot of times in these sci-fi films, when they're just running around corridors and stuff, you can't really get a good sense of like where they are at any given time. But in this mm-hmm. film, I think that he actually does a decent job at at uh building the profile of the ship as you're watching the film. Um and I also think that uh the the big reveal in this film, like if there is a moment of the movie that I think disturbed people to their core in 1997 that is like somehow managed to like stay in their mind all the way until now. And they're perhaps romanticizing the rest of the film based on this one moment is when they get the CD cause it's 1997 mm-hmm. of the, uh, the uh, ship's log, and there's like a moment, and the, when they're gonna, you know, open the black hole, then it gets like fuzzy or whatever. and Then it comes back, um, and then throughout the film, they're trying to get this fuzzy part fixed. Eventually, they do, and you see this like quick cut, yeah. like hot, like herky jerky kind of cut, like hell orgy going yeah, on yeah. that just looks like a like a Boshian nightmare. And I mean, that little tiny twenty seconds or whatever it is builds an entirely better movie in my head.
0: Totally. but
1: um, it is an effective like, like you think you're in one kind of movie and then you're like, Oh, okay. Like, like we, we definitely jumped yeah. over a line of decency that I wasn't sure this movie would do, which is kind of cool.
0: I'll, also, I will give a, uh, yeah, let's, let's talk about some positives. Um, <laughs> again, I do think that there was some, uh, there was some cool design work. There was some, there were some great practical effects and, there's some horror stuff that, you know, if you see this movie when you're when you're fucking 7, sure. uh, you, you know, If or, you
1: haven't seen all the movies' clear influences,
0: yeah, then I could definitely see how you could think this movie's a lot better than it is. Um, you know, like there's some uh uh stuff where there's like a, a body hanging in a, in a um in a medical bay like that death was pretty effective Mm -hmm. um a lot of them weren't for me though like some of them were just sort of explosions and stuff Um,
1: yeah because that's the problem with this director is he has zero subtlety so whenever the movie does get into a big horror moment um it's telegraphed from a mile away. It's never quite set up correctly. Yeah. And, and it, it always ends in some big,
0: loud action-y kind of moment that sort yeah. of undermines the whole thing. Exactly. And and I think that, yeah, like you said, I think there's a lot of decent ideas here. You know, even ripping off better movies, that's a fine sure. way to make a movie. I mean, um,
1: I was recently listening to the Pure Cinema podcast Um, which is the podcast that's done by the people who run uh, the new Beverly in Los Angeles, the uh, repertory Mm -hmm. theater that Quentin Tarantino owns. And he, Quentin Tarantino was a guest on the podcast, this particular episode that I was listening to. And they were talking about ripoff movies, the best ripoff movies. And um, it's a really entertaining episode. I would, I would highly uh, suggest anybody who's into the, that kind of stuff to listen to it. Um, But, uh, he was he was riffing on an older episode that they had done and kind of brought his list. And he said he took he took issue with people talking about films like Orca or Piranha as Jaws or just simply being Jaws ripoffs, which they are. Mm-hmm. But he says that, and I in in a way I kind of agree. Um, but I would extrapolate it to Alien as well that the Jaws ripoff became. So popular at a point in time that it became its own subgenre. Yeah,
0: and I think you
1: could say the same thing about Alien. I mean, if you look at a movie like um, Danny Boyle's uh, Sunshine, that definitely Mm. is in the same ballpark as this movie. And and in in some ways, it even has very structural similarities.
0: Oh yeah, Um, I actually I thought of that movie and I thought of um, another movie that came out around the same time that. Uh, I don't know if you ever saw this one. Did you ever see Sphere? Oh yeah. Yeah. So I didn't mm-hmm. see Event Horizon when it came out, but I did see Sphere when it came out. And I feel like Sphere is sort of my event horizon. Uh <laughs> yeah. like I remember it kind of freaked me out as a kid. I, I kind of want to uh give Sphere the Event Horizon challenge and like rewatch it and see if, see if it holds anything up. scary. Yeah.
1: Yeah, that was a Barry Levinson film. Um, I, yeah, I really, en- I actually enjoyed Sphere at the time. I, yeah, I would be interested to know how how well that holds up. But yeah, definitely kind of in this world, they're kind of like, you know, deep space and and deep underwater oftentimes mm-hmm. are generically did you, similar.
0: Did you see that uh, that movie Underwater that just came out like this year?
1: <laughs> no, but I, yep. I bet it is
0: similar. I mean, the trailer looks shot for shot like Alien. Like it, it's yeah. definitely in this wheelhouse. Uh, okay, I. That's a fair. That's a fair uh, thing to say. That that yeah,
1: and Alien you might even be been... able to say that about The Shining as well. Like both of both movies, The Shining, yeah. the Alien. If we could say the holy trinity of seventies horror is like The Shining, Alien, and and The Exorcist, and they both yeah. have. You know, generations of children.
0: Uh, uh, what about Texas Chainsaw? I feel like I feel like sure that the, one as well. The, but I, I mean, we'll the say, those but, the three that I mentioned,
1: uh, The Exorcist, The Shining, and Alien were all like blockbusters.
0: Yeah, that's okay. Like, all right. Whereas, uh, okay. Yeah. So where were we with this? I, I, think, I think we were we, trying to
1: be positive about it.
0: Yeah, I. Here's the thing. I think this could be a fun movie. I think it's almost like it's trying so hard and it's so earnest um, and it's so badly dated that I think mm-hmm. this could be like a really fun like group movie to watch at Halloween. Sure. Um, like it's schlocky and big spectacle enough that that I think you could have a good time watching this movie. I just don't think it's as elevated as. It maybe feels like it might have be in the collective unconscious.
1: That is for certain. Yeah, because I remember hearing all of these things about it since it had come out. Um, and every time I talk to somebody, like I said, the, you know every time I talk to somebody who's like a casual movie fan, and where horror comes up, and maybe they don't watch that much horror, really, and or, maybe they
0: haven't seen
1: all and also I bet there, there was a bit of a least. bait and switch with this because I doubt they marketed it as hell orgy. I think yeah. they probably marketed it as like a weird mystery in space, and then they they brought it home from Blockbuster and popped in their v h s and then they got this. A, a type of movie that maybe a lot of people wouldn't have seen voluntarily
0: i i think yeah uh i'll i'll give it some credit for that then for for sneaking people into a hell orgy uh, I, I don't think that sphere uh ended with with a, a naked sam Neill wanting to sodomize people in space forever so uh yeah i guess good on it
1: yeah, I'll, I'll give it kink points for sure. <laughs> um, but but yeah, I think the uh, as a whole, it's still kind of a schlocky mess. But you know what? Okay. It's forgivingly short. It's ninety minutes.
0: That's true. That's true. And I didn't feel the runtime like I was starting to with the Lady Killers. Sure. Um, I okay. So I just was curious, but um, I had to look it up. Sphere does have a lower Rotten Tomatoes <laughs> score than Event Horizon
1: but um, again going back to the subject of this very podcast um, uh sure, sphere sure. was directed by barry levinson a celebrated director and uh, who enough. has different expectations than. and it was also based on a Crichton novel or something like that of which there were many coming out around that time i think people were kind of sick of it and this film was directed by the guy who made mortal Kombat.
0: yeah that's true and and that was pretty much it uh yeah okay so, all right so let's let's give this our letter grade let's grade it on yeah uh, uh just a normal movie grade i'm giving this like i'll i'll give it a c minus uh it's
1: for just it, sci-fi horror in yeah, general. yeah
0: i even still i think i'm grading it a little bit on a curve just because of the date like the fucking trip hop soundtrack at the end <laughs> Uh, <laughs> horizon um <laughs> i kind of love yeah, it yes yeah so, so i'll give it a c minus um yeah
1: I, i'd say that's exactly where i'd put it too it's in the in the grand scheme of alien ripoffs or or deep space deep space exploration horror it's not the worst because there's been so many that there's been Oh, there's been worse. Remember that movie, the the Cloverfield Paradox, which is kind of like an even worse yeah. version of this.
0: Ooh, oh my God, it is! Holy shit, and it is so much worse. It doesn't <laughs> yeah. have hell orgy,
1: exactly. And uh, this movie really- somehow managed to be slightly more subtle. <laughs>
0: <laughs> you think Chris O'Dowd's arm growing out of a ship? Uh, yeah. Also, you know, orgy win does win a lot of points for me. Also, uh I've said also a lot, but also uh weirdly progressive for a horror movie. Not only sure does uh the black guy not die first, there's two black guys that make it to the very end.
1: That is true. That is true as well. Um, yeah, if I'm if I'm grading on the curve of Paul W. S. Anderson joints, um, it does raise it a little bit because he's made yeah. some really really bad movies um, yes. that are that are as completely unwatchable. Um, uh, B minus for a Paul Anderson film. For
0: Paul Anderson, I
1: don't know I, if he. I mean, I never seen shopping, so I should see that to get the full picture of his thing. But
0: uh, everything I else, my, I think my favorite of his is. I mean, it's definitely Mortal Kombat. Uh, 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 you know, Death Race, kind of fun. Um, <laughs> other than that, everything is pretty much below this. So I, yeah, I'll give this a B. I'll give it a B plus. Wow. For, paul anderson
1: yeah uh not I to mean, be confused with paul thomas anderson the much better filmmaker
0: yeah uh yeah
1: um this is mila jovovich's husband
0: oh really
1: yeah i that's mean why she he's in like she's in like all of his movies
0: yeah she's been in everything of his since uh resident evil right yeah that's
1: probably where they met i don't know if that's true but i would imagine
0: i didn't know they were married that's fun
1: <laughs> um so there you have it uh this was a fun exercise. I don't know if it's as fun to listen to us talk about it as it is um, for us to have done, but I think it's it's a worthy it's a worthy occasion to kind of look at how the critical reception of something changes or distorts the uh, the nature of objectivity, if you
0: will. Yeah, for sure. Also, uh, I think the the only thing I might have learned from this episode is. A, I want to watch a lot more Cohen Brothers, and yep. B, I want to watch Sphere.
1: Okay, I thought you were going to say you wanted to watch a movie with Ryan Gosling and Lady Gaga in a hell orgy.
0: Oh my god. I think you just cracked the code, my friend.
1: Best movie ever. Okay, let's go ahead and uh, just kind of close out the show then. If anybody has anything to say about any of the things that we talked about in this episode or previous episodes, uh, you can email us at Pod oh. at gmail.com. You can also I want, I contact wanna, us.
0: I want to add a little caveat to that. Uh, please, please, please share with us your stories about how you, like, when you were 13 rented this movie, hoping for a little bit of nudity and ended up with fucking hell orgy and how it traumatized you. Like I yeah. want to hear, I want to hear your event horizon trauma stories.
1: <laughs> Absolutely. And, uh, yeah, you can also find us on social media at MacGuffin pod on Twitter and Instagram. Um, you can also, uh, stream us or listen to us on your favorite podcatchers, including, uh, Stitcher Radio, Player.fm, PocketCast, and iTunes. If you're an iTunes user or PocketCast, I believe, and um, Stitcher, you can also write reviews and leave us a star rating. We would enjoy that. Uh, you can follow me individually on Twitter at bccassidy. Um, and I'm also under VC Cassidy on Instagram. And you can read my reviews that I do every other week for the Idaho State Journal on their entertainment movies page. You can just Google Idaho State Journal movies and my reviews will pop up. Um, and I think that is it for my side. What about you?
0: You can follow me on Twitter, even though I'm barely on there anymore because Twitter is trash uh, at Keith Foster kid. No joke. I logged into Twitter for 30 seconds the other day and immediately regretted it and logged the fuck back out. Um, and, but you can also follow me on Instagram. I post stuff there occasionally. I'm kind of not online right now, which is ironic because that's sort of where the rest of the world is. I, I'm more of a lurker at the moment. Sure. Uh, yeah, so follow me on Instagram and Twitter at Keith Kid. You can go to my website if you want at www.keithfosterkid.com. There's not much there, though. Uh, Or don't. Whatever. Who fucking cares? Uh,
1: You also have your art account on Instagram, right?
0: Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, I kind of slowed down with that a little bit, too, but I'll get back into it. Uh, You can follow me at Sticky Note Aesthetic. I do, like, fun doodles on Post-it notes.
1: Mm Mm-hmm. Um, and be sure if you are uh, listening to this or if you checked us out through the MacGuffin's website, MacGuff.in, be sure to read the other reviews and articles written by the McGuffin staff. Um, otherwise, that is the end of the
0: episode. And with that, I'll leave you with this. Give it to Gaga.
1: Bye.